Welcome to Project Zion Podcast. This is Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history. I'm your host, Karen Peter. Our discussion today is part of a series we've been uh, recording, conversations about the historical and theological journey of Community of Christ. Our resident panel members are Locke Mackay and Tony Shabala-Smith. Locke is an historian, the director of Community of Christ Historic Sites, and he serves on the Council of Twelve Apostles. Tony is a theologian who teaches scripture and theology at Community of Christ Seminary and Graceland University. Both Locke and Tony are quite familiar to Project Zion listeners. So in this series, we are following the development of the early church, the reorganization, and then our journey as Community of Christ. We've been looking at important church events in their historical and cultural context, as well as the corresponding theological developments and their impact on the church. So today we're going to be talking about the period of time when W. Grant McMurray was President Prophet of Community of Christ. And I'm looking forward to hearing what Locke and Tony have to share on this. So who's going first today in this discussion? If it's okay, I'll jump in. All right, Locke, go ahead. So let's start with a little bit on Grant himself. Grant was born in Toronto, Canada in 1947, one of two children of William and Noreen Norris McMurray. Grant's dad, William, served in the Canadian Army and worked in advertising before becoming an appointee minister for the church. Grant grew up in Toronto, Guelph, and Ottawa, then moved to Independence, Missouri when he was 12. His father struggled to overcome a drinking problem and had separated from the family. And Noreen assumed the responsibility of sustaining the family and eventually moved Grant, his grandmother, and his sister Donna to Independence for a new start. He later graduated from Graceland, married Joyce Lawrence, and in 1971 went to work for the church as an assistant to Paul Booth and the director of program planning. He was eventually able to complete a Master of Divinity degree as well. Grant was a founding member of the John Whitmer Historical Association in 1972 and named church archivist in 1973 before becoming assistant history commissioner, the equivalent of assistant church historian to Richard Howard. Dick and Grant worked together to negotiate with LDS historians on the trade of a book of commandments, the Joseph Smith III blessing, which Mark Hoffman had previously agreed to sell to us. After spending 10 years in the past while focused on church history, Grant became World Church Secretary and Executive Assistant to the First Presidency in 1982 and would spend the next 10 years focused intently on the present. He was called as a counselor in the First Presidency by Wallace B. Smith in 1992 and publicly designated by Wally as his successor in the fall of 1995 with Grant's ordination as prophet president occurring in April of 96. Grant brought two inspired documents to the church, now sections 161 and 162 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Following 33 years as a full-time minister for the church, over eight of them as prophet president, Grant resigned in November 2004, noting that he had made some inappropriate choices and had also recently been diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's disease. He chose not to designate a successor, 
and turning to section 104 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the 12 entered a period of discernment, which resulted in Stephen M. Vesey succeeding Grant in 2005. One of the major themes from Grant's tenure was a prophetic people. Building on the church's 1830s emphasis on common consent, Community of Christ members in recent decades have been invited to participate in the prophetic task. In a world conference addressed to the church soon after Grant's 1996 ordination, he said, we need to talk, my friends, about the way we have begun to move from our identity as a people with a prophet to our calling as a prophetic people. A conversation continued in 2004. He said, as a prophetic people, you are called under the direction of the spiritual authorities and with the common consent of the people to discern the divine will for your own time and in the places where you serve. You live in a world with new challenges, and that world will require new forms of ministry. President Beasy picked up on the theme in 2007 in section 163 of the Doctrine and Covenants. God is calling for a prophetic community to emerge, drawn from the nations of the world, that is characterized by uncommon devotion to the compassion and peace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In an increasingly complex and challenging world, Community Christ strives to be not only a people with a prophet, but to be a prophetic people. Another major event happening during Grant's time in office was Transformation 2000. That initiative was launched in 1997 and was described as a far-reaching and challenging goal with concrete objectives to achieve in less than three years. The goal was to become a worldwide church dedicated to the pursuit of peace, reconciliation, and healing of the spirit. Objectives included articulating a clear and compelling Christ-centered theology of peace and justice, engaging 20,000 children, youth, and young adults in the exploration of Christian values and restoration principles with a focus on peace and justice challenging every congregation to engage in outreach to children and youth with a focus on peace and justice with 200 congregations modeling these emphases. Establishing 200 new congregations with an emphasis on ethnic and cultural diversity. And finally, adding 200 full-time field ministers, some paid and some volunteer, one third of whom would focus on youth and children. My sense is, and, and I was not in, involved intimately in Transformation 2000, but my sense is that we were unable to adequately train and support the large numbers of new ministers, and the revitalization effort didn't generate significant increases in members and tithing. Many of our best and brightest answered the call to serve, but after three years, we were unable to financially continue supporting many of those people and the resulting separations generated significant heartache and hurt. A number of today's leaders though, like Karen Peter and Robin Linkhart, are here because of Transformation 2000. Also during Grant's time, Community of Christ Seminary was launched. In the same 1997 sermon that introduced T2000 to the church, Grant shared that we were exploring the creation of a seminary with Graceland and Park College. Joe Seerig was tasked with coordinating the development of a seminary. 
After the work of focus and advisory groups and a seminary task force, World Conference Resolution 1274 was passed in April of 2000, which empowered the First Presidency to move forward with the creation of a seminary and the appointment of a board of trustees. In June of 2000, we were approved as affiliate members of the Association of Theological Schools. In May of 2001, a memorandum of understanding was approved, formalizing the partnership between the church and Graceland, with Barbara Higdon serving as the first provost on an interim basis. Initial degrees to be offered were a Master of Arts in Religion and a Master of Divinity. Don Campier was announced as provost in the spring of 2002, and when classes commenced that fall, the Master of Divinity offering had been replaced with the Master of Arts in Christian Ministries. From the Kirtland, Ohio Theological Institution in 1830s Kirtland to the Community of Christ Seminary today, we have a long history of recognizing the importance of education in ministry. Another emphasis under Grant was diversifying church leadership. It was very intentional about the need for leadership to reflect membership. And in 1998, 14 years after Section 156 allowed for the ordination of women, the first female apostles were ordained. Linda Booth had served as assistant director of communications prior to her call, and Gail Mingle had coordinated women's ministries for the church. Mary Jax Dines, previously a president of 70, would join them in 2002. Also in 1998, Bunda Chibwe of Zambia was called to be a president of 70 and then joined the Council of 12 in 2000. Women had served in the Standing High Council since Patricia Traxel was appointed in 1990, but that body became increasingly diverse under Grant. Stacey Cram was called into the presiding bishopric in 2002 and was called by Steve Easy, who continued to push to diversify church leadership into the Council of 12 in 2005. Also during Grant's time, discussions began to pick up surrounding same gender relationships. Jurisdictions began submitting World Conference resolutions on the topic, and the conversations became more heated leading up to the 2002 World Conference with several jurisdictions submitting resolutions asking that the 1982 Standing High Council Statement, which allowed for the ordination of the language that I'm gonna use as language from the period, not language that we probably would choose today, but um, the Standing High Council Statement allowed for the ordination of homosexual members only of celibate, uh, and these resolutions called for that policy to be updated to reflect the inclusive nature of the church. In Grant's April of 2002 conference sermon, he shared that the First Presidency had received over the last few weeks scores of letters emails, and phone calls on the topic, many of which were, quote, desperate and angry. He noted that there is no issue that divides churches around the world in our time, like the issue of homosexuality. And he called on us to reject the division and hatefulness that often accompanied the topic. In a surprise to all but the first presidency, Grant shared that he had witnessed the approval of priesthood calls for individuals who he knew to be in committed same-sex relationships, and that in so doing, he had ignored the provisions of the 1982 High Council Statement. He also asked the delegates to table or refer 
all legislation focused on homosexuality. Members were both furious and disappointed in President McMurray for willfully ignoring church policy. I'd love to hear the impressions of Karen and Tony, but my sense is that the push for equality suffered a significant setback because of the backlash against Grant's words and actions. The World Church Leadership Council met in September 2002 and generated a statement affirming that going forward, it would follow the provisions of the 1982 guidelines regarding the calling and ordination of gay and lesbian members. It would require another 11 years, countless listening circles, and a new prophet president to navigate the approval and creation of national conferences, which allowed us to have discussions at a national versus denominational level and opened the door for change. That is a whirlwind tour through, through the life and times of W. Grant McMurray. Oh, uh, yes, I'm stunned just listening to all the major kind of changes through there. And I'm, I'm surprised the church is not still reeling from some of that, but uh, more came following that, right? We've been in several decades of change. So, um, Tony, with all of the things that Locke described, let's talk about the theological journey that took place as we encountered all of these changes in the church. Well, th there's a lot to talk about here, but I'm going to try and, and be as brief as I can on it so we can continue to have an exchange on this. So let me just say that that uh, there's a constant in Christian theology, a, a constant tension, I've mentioned this before, between faithfulness to the Jesus story and credibility or relevance to the current cultural context. So those things, I, I, I see that always as a productive tension. If you go too far one way, you have problems. Too far the other way, you have problems. If you go too far on the faithfulness side, you, you basically say we're, it's written in stone and we can't, we can't possibly change the words. Let's just keep things the way they were back then. And that's not the gospel. But if you go too far the other way, you risk the faith of the church and the community simply evaporating into whatever cultural milieu it goes into and losing all sense of, of Christian distinctiveness in that. So the, the same tension you see in the McMurray years, it's been there all along as we've started, way from the start back in the 1820s, right, right through the whole journey to today. So that I just wanna get, get that uh, theological tension out there uh, because it's present here. So um, being partly trained as a historian, I'm gonna name some of my sources here. <laughs> So uh, Mark, Mark Shearer's volume three is really, I think, quite good. And I should say that, and, and Locke can, can confirm on this, but the, the, the nearer the events are to the people talking about them, the harder it is to do really good critical history on them because we are participants in it. And so, and yet I think Mark Shearer's volume three, when he deals with the McMurray years is quite, quite thoughtfully done and, and very helpful. So Shearer's volume three is one source Another source for me is myself. This, this, my, my experience, my most of my adult experience in the church and, and my professional experience in the church and at Graceland have been around. Uh, they started in the McMurray years, so. And I think uh, Charmaine and I first really kind of got to know them in 1991. The first presidency had a a, a young adult retreat by invitation only at Estes Park, Colorado. 
because that generation of church leaders was wanting to hear from what we were, young adults, right at the time, I was still a young adult, were wanting to hear from, from young adults in the early 1990s about what they imagined or hoped the church to be. And the McMurrays were there at that retreat, and Charmaine and I were at that retreat in Estes Park, Colorado. And that's the first time I really had any contact with, with, with Grant. Uh, subsequently, a few years later, when he was in the presidency, he would interview Charmaine and me for a position uh, that was called Theologian in Residence, which we assumed late in 1996, and we came in with the understanding and acceptance of the leadership that we would be working the position together. So, so, so anyway, uh, Grant's, Grant's uh, ministry as prophet president certainly coincides with a, a major part of what has been Charmaine's in my ministry to the church. So, but you see, here's the problem. I can't give you the 30,000 foot view because it's too close, <laughs> right? So I'll do my best here. So one, a historian has to be careful about claiming one's own self as a source. So I'm just, you know, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware here. And also Charmaine and I always talk, talk about all these things. And so, so uh, she had some very important insights, which I'll including my insights here about the McMurray years. So so let's say first that Grant McMurray is a critically trained historian who goes into the first presidency. That's that's a whole new thing. It's not like Wallace B. and perhaps W. Wallace Smith to some extent didn't know about history or hadn't hadn't studied history or weren't aware of critical history. But it's one thing to know about history from a critical perspective. It's quite another thing to be trained as a critic, critical historian. And so Grant was. Um, and that gave him an incredible capacity to describe our, our theological situation in terms of what he knew about the church's story. He knew the church's story exceedingly well. And his, his sermons and his talks were always full of uh, amazing anecdotes and stories and things that come out of the church's history. That, was quite, that made him quite endearing as a speaker to church members because, hey, he's talking our language, right? He, he's talking about us and our church. At the same time, Grant knew all the questions, all the issues, all the struggles, all of the things that uh, make one uh, wish one could have gone back in the past and shaken a few people and got them to do things differently. So he knew all of that. But also, personally, Grant, this is something Charmaine has observed, Grant. Grant was okay with being personally vulnerable when he shared stuff. You know, he was quite open about his story. And that 2002 conference sermon that Locke mentioned, we were there, I remember it, and that was a moment of, of uh, profound vulnerability, and yet it was complicated because what you saw there was that there's a deep tension between being prophetic and being a president, right? We refer to our leaders, the prophet president. Well, that's, that's almost an oxymoron sometimes, <laughs> right? So in that particular circumstance he, he referred to, he had abdicated the presiding role in a sense by letting certain things happen that the, the rules said shouldn't happen. But one could argue that he was functioning from the prophetic side there. So the, what, what we sometimes hold together, prophet president, uh, there are situations in which it's really almost impossible for those to be held together. But I do think I agree with Locke that, that the, the, the fallout from that did slow us down going forward because a lot of jurisdictions were like, well, hey, we've been trying to follow the rules here and, and the leader isn't? What do you mean? <laughs> so was, that was pretty, a pretty, uh, pretty complicated morass we got into at that point. Uh, uh, Locke has already mentioned Grant's uh, deep stress on diversity, on diversifying, uh, diversifying church leadership. 
Grant was particularly uh, concerned about the church's history with African Americans and was quite open and honest about our failures there. Um, I remember him at an event early, early in the 2000s, maybe maybe even 99 or it was very early in his, his, his ministry as prophet president. There was an event at the temple in January that was that had a lot of African-American church members uh, come in to, to talk about the church and its its experience, uh, in, especially in the United States with, with, with black Americans. And Grant was very open and vulnerable about the church's failures there. So his, his concern for diversifying the makeup of church leadership, I think is quite, quite laudable. And then uh, we've heard about T2000 and the desire to engage young adults in the ministry of the church. My wife, has, my wife noted that uh, this, this had the positive effect of opening a lot of young adults to the sense that they were ministers in a way that had not been done before. At the same time, young adults who came into T2000 ministry positions found themselves typically working in settings where generations one or two older than them were, were in charge of their work and had a whole different set of uh, values and expectations and it became, there were a lot of difficult pastoral issues that came up there because young adults working in that environment uh, found themselves pushed upon by generations that didn't fully understand them, even though some of these young adults were their own children. So there, there, there were a lot of difficult pastoral issues that came up there for young adults trying to function as full-time paid ministers. By the way, it's very interesting. We, we have a, a, an iffy sort of history with paid ministry, right? We want it. And we don't want it, going back to our roots in the 1820s and 30s. We need a professional ministerial class, and yet sometimes people in the church resent it. And so it's a common, common thing in the church for a jurisdiction that's paying for ministry to expect like their, their paid person to be everything for them, when in fact one is usually called into a position to do certain things, not everything. We did not have a strong enough ethos of local paid ministry to make that part of T2000 uh, succeed well. And yet at the same time, it did open lots of young adults at the time to the sense of their own ministry. Um, Grant was really good about articulating that our history is not our message. Our history is not the gospel. Our history is not our theology. These things are different. They're interrelated, but they're not the same. And for Grant, history obviously as tradition informs our theological journey, but it cannot, it cannot be our message. We, cannot, we simply cannot talk about our past as if that's the gospel. And Grant was very good about making that very clear. And so the way I would put it there is that our history as tradition can become illustrative of theological principles and gospel claims, but it is not normative. We, we can't just turn history into, well, it, it's been done this way, so we must never do it any other way ever since because that's the gospel. No, Grant was very aware of the, the differences between history and theology. I think that was quite quite good for us. Also, um, in, in Grant's presidency, theology stopped being a dirty word <laughs> in the church, right? I mean, coming out of our roots in the 1820s and 30s, there was this uh, democratized sense that that theology is the thing those eggheads in the universities and seminaries do. We don't have theology. That's man-made stuff, to use their language. We just have the gospel, pure and simple. That's a, that was a long tradition in the reorganization. But 
Grant used the word theology a lot, and it became okay to use that word to describe uh, the process of faith-seeking understanding. So the seminary is a success story coming out of T2000. The seminary still exists. The seminary is doing extremely well. I work for the seminary. Charmaine works for the seminary. And we have, we have two degrees, and we have lots of hopes and prospects. And so uh, T2000, I've heard Mark Shearer describe T2000 as a Hail Mary pass. <laughs> And you know, church leaders at the time were in the late nineties were were aw were aware to some extent of this great cultural religious shift away from institutionalized church and religion and so on. They were aware of it. T two thousand could be seen as a last attempt to to live out of that paradigm. I think I would I would argue with Mark and say T two thousand was a series of hail mary passes, some of which were caught. The seminary was one, some of which were fumbled. And the, the fumbling was not necessarily from personal mistake. It was simply we didn't have the funding funding to make it go. Locke mentioned that. There was a there was a, a great sense at the time of, you know, if you build it, they will pay. <laughs> right. And uh, uh it it didn't work out that way. You had an increasingly aging population of the church who were doing the giving, and um, so there just there just wasn't the financing to make it go. But some things succeeded. And also, I should mention that in the realm of religion, how do you measure success and failure? So that's kind of complicated. Lots, there are lots of things that we'll never be able to measure that were successful that came out of T2000, but we didn't start 200 new congregations and we didn't retain 200 full-time paid staff from that. So, so one other thing, uh, and this is something Charmaine I've talked about and she, she mentioned, I, I really want to credit her on this. She said, Grant was able to put Zion language back on the map for us. Zion language had sort of, we've sort of lost touch with it, fault, it kind of faltered because it had been traditionally associated with kind of literal images of, of gathering to Jackson County, Missouri, which by the way is a horrible place to live in the summer if you hate the heat like Tony does. Um, like so, what's happening right this minute as you speak. Oh, gracious, yes. So uh, those old images of marching to Zion, singing songs of everlasting joy and so on, that had been part of the mythology of the church earlier, and very, very powerfully so. Those had kind of fallen by the wayside, and and yet Grant was able to pick up the Zion thread and connect it very deeply to the peace and justice thread that had been articulated by Wallace B. Smith in section 156. And so the, the Zion of our dreams becomes language we start using again. That is now, but now we're thinking of it not as a, a walled safe city, but we're thinking of it as increasingly as the transformation of the world in the direction of peace and justice. So uh, Locke mentioned the prophetic people theme that that Grant uh, first articulated in that initial in his initial sermon as as prophet president of the church. And let me I can back that theme up to the early 1960s where F. Henry Edwards used the term prophetic people to describe what God wanted us to be in a book uh, titled The Divine Purpose in Us. So that thread goes back even farther for us, you know, uh, that God, the God wants the church to be a prophetic people. And by the way, F. Henry Edwards, in articulating that back in the early 1960s, said a prophetic people are people who do the kinds of things the Hebrew prophets did. That is, speak for the poor, speak for those who are ill-housed and, and poorly educated, 
had a very strong social impact, uh, a very strong social dynamic to it that, that F. Henry Edwards articulated. And so that, I, I just want to say that the peace and justice theme didn't just get dropped on us all of a sudden. It had a, it had a history in the church and Grant was aware of that history. One could say that Grant put, this is not a good metaphor, but it's the best one I got. Grant put some teeth into the peace language that Wallace B. had given us in section 156. Right, so the peace colloquy became increasingly more important during that era, and speaking uh, speaking of peace, hiring a peace and justice ministries coordinator at the time, Andrew Bolton, that was that happened during uh, Grant's presidency, and so the the peace theme got a lot of uh, a, a real boost from Grant's presidency. I, I like to think of sections one sixty one and one sixty two, and then the subsequent VZ sections up to one sixty five. I refer to them as the new creation texts of the church. That is, the 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 old RLDS uh, self identity, which was demythologized in the nineteen sixties and early seventies, and which was not sustainable intellectually from that point on, left the church without kind of a, a strong sense of identity for for quite a number of years. But beginning with McMurray's presidency. Um, there's this sense of a, of what uh, the, the the Trappist monk and former Methodist theologian Paul Jones would call a remythologizing of the tradition. As we'd gone through this stage of critical deconstruction, now it was time to reconstruct. And Grant was brilliant as a reconstructor of uh, a new image for what the church could be. Section 161, I think this absolutely critical, where where the words are, claim your unique and sacred place within the circle of those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, that we, we canonized those words, which effectively put an end to the idea that we were the one and only true church. Uh, he goes on in that section, right? Say, be faithful to the spirit of the restoration. Now that's important. The spirit of the restoration, not the letter of the restoration. Mindful that it is a spirit of adventure, openness, and searching. Walk proudly and with a quickened step, be a joyful people, laugh and play and sing, embodying the hope and freedom of the gospel. Uh, one might say, not embodying the rules and regulations <laughs> of the past. So, so that the images in that section were very, very important for helping us develop a new, uh, develop ourselves into a new sense of our identity. And then in 162, Regarding our sacramental theology, he says, you have already been told to look to the sacraments to enrich the spiritual life of the body. It is not the form of the sacrament that dispenses grace, but it is the divine presence that gives life. Now that is critical language, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the form, i.e. it's not that you were baptized by immersion and every part of your body was pushed under. It's not the form, it's the spirit. That gives that gives life there. So, it it's a diff, it's a it's a whole new way, at least in community of Christ, to think about our sacramental theology. It moves it away from a series of rules into a series of uh, spiritually enriched enriching practices. That's pretty important. He goes on to say, be respectful of tradition and sensitive to one another, but do not be unduly bound by interpretations and procedures that no longer fit the needs of a worldwide church. Okay, there's the there's that polarity, faithfulness and credibility, uh, right there in, in that very sentence. Uh, and then he says, in, in, in such matters, direction will come from those called to lead. 
I mean, we became, we literally became community of Christ during Grant McMurray's presidency. The, the ideas that are behind what community of Christ is and, and will be had already been articulated in the 1960s, but it took a while to get there, which is nobody's fault. It just, it's, it's, the, it's the way things develop, right? And without, I mean, you could say without, without W. Wallace surrounding himself with really critical thinkers, that we would never have gotten here without Wallace B and his openness to all kinds of possibilities for the church and his, and especially section 156, we would never have gotten here. But so here finally in, in Grant McMurray's time and through his ministry, we, we are, we are really starting to take on what it means to be community of Christ. We have a ways to go on that yet. I would be the first to say, but uh, his, his presidency and his ministry were extremely important in that era and for us today we we are part partly who we are today because of his presidency all right so this has much more content than i anticipated for this particular uh episode but i do i do have a a question but before i get to that i wanted to revisit the the idea of grant's sermon where he mentioned being present where people were ordained who were in same gender relationships. So I'm not sure about the idea that it, that it disrupted or pushed back the timeline on when the church would have been more accepting. I think the church took a while to recover from 156. And then this was the next really major hit, if you will. And it took about the same amount of time to recover it just it just happened in a different way but it had the same impact as if it had been inspired counsel as what we saw with 156 i do think it broke open the discussion that was no longer a sidebar so i think before then the whole discussion about equality and diversity and sexuality were sidebars to other discussions, but this this brought it into the center of who who we are and what we were discussing and made it important. I also think when you look at the context of the United States at the time, we were we were still on the forward edge of the religious dialogue around this particular issue. When you look at what happened in Omaha and the reaction that happened in the Midwest after that with, with the Methodists, you can see that this we were following the same kind of pattern. We were very much in, in cultural context in the United States at least, but we were on the forward edge of that. And the last thing I want to say about that is that when Grant did that in his sermon, he actually focused all of the kind of anger that was floating out there around the issue that people didn't know what to do with it. They just dumped it on him. So you could say in a prophetic way, he took the, the brunt of the anger that was flowing through the church around the discussion and gave it a place to live, whether it was healthy for him or not, that freed up people to have a, a healthier discussion, a more complete discussion. So 
living in the midst of that in a congregation that was mainly LGBTQIA folks. That's what it looked like, at least for me. But my, okay, so that's the, on that subject, you can respond to that as you will, but those were my comments. I have a question. As I look at this, Grant's presidency was the first time the first presidency was a completely non-US presidency. So we had a Canadian, a Brit, and an Australian, right, as the first presidency. Did that have an impact? So I think it did. It might be hard to disentangle the, the cultural part of the impact from the fact that that uh, Ken Robinson and Peter Judd were just such exceptionally competent and astute ministers. Now I say that, I know them both and I'm friends with them both, but when Grant resigned in November of 2004, and we were, we were in that uh, limbo area for a while, the, the kind of leadership that both Ken and Peter gave in that period was absolutely exceptional. There was no sense that the boat was going down. Uh, they they kept a, kept things even and steady steady, and there was a sense that we we were going to move forward and that we were not going to gossip about this. And we're not you know, the church. The church was not about one person. It was about God's work in the world. And they they conveyed that so incredibly. Now is that is that part is that part of the temperament of the Commonwealth? <laughs> Uh, that's that's you're a, married to a Canadian, Tony. You tell I, us. <laughs> I know I am, and and so I say, God save the. I guess I'll say, God save the king now, right? So, <laughs> British British theology in the history of Christian thought has a kind of levelness to it, uh, level, even keeledness, moderation, and whether that comes out in that kind of a presence or not, it's going to take future historians to to dig that one out. My hunch is that they would probably say, well, yes, right? The, the volatility and the emotional immaturity of American culture <laughs> is not represented so much in Australian, Canadian, and British culture. Now, it's not, I'm not saying there's not people in those cultures who are not emotional, emotionally volatile. It's just that the, the, the cult, the culture, those cultures have ways of keeping themselves steady in the midst of, of all kinds of things. British theology, like William Temple and Archbishop Gore, so on, just just this this magnificent kind of depth and even keeledness through it as they explore all kinds of difficult issues. So, it is quite possible that a presidency of from the Commonwealth had certain kinds of temperaments that helped the church in very deep and significant ways. So, so I, I'm I'm really on kind of thin psychocultural ice there, but I, I, I'm certainly willing to, to, to hazard a guess at that. Thanks, Tony. Locke, do you want to, do you have anything to add to that? Sure. Yeah, I think it had to have a significant impact, but I'm not sure that maybe more impactful were simply who they were as individuals. So for example, Ken, as a clinical psychologist, I think was very involved in helping us move forward on issues of sexuality. I think critically important. So is it the Australian or is it the background, professional background? I, no, I think it's probably both. Excellent. So as you said, we'll we'll look back on that 30 or 40 years from now and 
in the grand sweep of community of Christ and see what kind of impact we can trace from that. So any last comments or anecdotes or thoughts about this particular period of time? I've got a couple. You know, in the same 2002 conference sermon where Grant talked about witnessing ordinations of folks in committed same-sex relationships, he also, and also without engaging church leaders outside the First Presidency, I believe, announced the Kirtland Temple Visitor Center Project, yeah. which was a significant surprise to, to many in leadership. And it almost feels like he was taking uh, a play out of, of Wallace B. Smith's book with announcing you know, women in the priesthood and the Independence Temple at the same time. Let's give something to the progressives. Let's give something to the conservatives. Maybe maybe that'll smooth it out. Well, of course, it didn't in either case. So, uh, maybe a valuable lesson for future leaders on uh, what won't work. In 1996, I was at a John Whitmer Historical Association conference in Kirtland, and a member from the Washington, D.C. area, George Walton, who loves statistics, presented a paper on the future of community of Christ based on baptismal rates and uh, just all kinds of stuff that he had called from the Herald. Again, that's 1996. Larry Norris, presiding bishop, was there and seemed not at all amused with what George was presenting. It was not a, a promising trajectory for the church based on George's work. Larry seemed not at all happy about that. And for, remember, I was siloed at historic sites until 2016. So I have long thought, why didn't they listen to George? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I'm out there in a congregation with six people, I'm like, I cannot believe they didn't try and address this 20 years ago. Well, of course, I now realize they did. <laughs> yeah. They did have some concept of what was happening. I think that timing is fascinating. George in 96 2000 announced in 97. <laughs> um, they recognized what was happening to some extent and were trying to address it. <laughs> yeah. <Fun. laughs> yeah, trying to address change with an old paradigm is always tough, right? So we've yeah. learned a lot. Yeah, so, uh, referring back to, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking back to what Locke said a few minutes ago about uh, taking a Borrowing from Wallace B's playbook, there, I, I I'm thinking of the old the old uh, the old uh, the old saw used for for weddings. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. Right. Uh, so um, hey, that's what theology is, right? So it is it is all of that. And Grant was really good at the something old and something new and bringing them together in creative ways. One thing that listeners might not get out of this is how absolutely witty Grant was. He was, he had, he had a, a George Burns kind of sarcastic, sardonic, ironic sense of humor, not, not in a mean way, but simply, simply with, with a look or with a few well-placed words, he could have you in, in stitches. He was extremely witty and funny in, in that, in that role, which was very endearing to people, right? It, people, people felt, uh, I think always with the Smith family, there was a sense of, of proper distance. But with Grant, there wasn't quite that sense that you had to, had to keep a certain 
a certain reverence <laughs> before him. So he was very, very approachable and he wanted to listen to everybody. He was, he was very, very good at that. Um, it's a, a perfect example of how hard it is to be a prophetic church. That's who we are, who we want to be, but it's really tough work. And so finding one's way into the strange and, and unknown landscapes of the future is really, really difficult. At the same time, you are trying to be faithful to God's revelation in Christ, right? It's not, that's, that's not negotiable. And yet how we interpret and live it and articulate it in, in landscapes that our ancestors couldn't have imagined. Grant was, Grant was on to that. And that's where we still are. We still have to do that in ways that I think perhaps that he now couldn't have imagined because uh, as we get further and further into the 21st century, I think we find that the, the, the landscape in which religion and particularly, you know, our brand of Christianity is trying to navigate is a very, a very odd and forbidding landscape. So we have faced these landscapes before and we will continue to face them. It's part of the journey. Thank you, Tony. So now as everybody is furiously Googling George Burns, at least everybody under 50 is Googling George Burns. Thanks, Tony. This has brought us, I think, to, to where we are now in the life of Community of Christ. And so our next episode, let's look at some of the sweeping themes we have discerned over this journey of our uh, past almost dozen episodes and see what we can identify as indicators of where we might be going in that uh, interesting and difficult landscape and possibly even identify some minor characters in this story that we might have overlooked as we have gone through. I am aware that often when we talk about the history of the church, it is always through the lens of men, and maybe there are some women's voices we could pick up in some of these as well. So we'll do that in our ne next episode. In the meantime, be sure to catch up on all the topics Project Zion Podcast has and all the series it has at projectzionpodcast.org. And again, as always, thank you, Locke and Tony, for sharing with us today. I'm Karen Peter. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.